0: Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Today we have with us Dr. Michael Clark from the Griffith Asia Institute. Uh, Michael is an ARC research fellow with the Institute. And today Michael is going to look at ethnic tensions and unrest in Xinjiang to, uh, to illustrate the broader issue of anxiety in China over the nature of the modern Chinese state. To Um, Thanks Michael. I suppose I'd just like to start before I get into the the meat of of the paper um, with I suppose uh, one disclaimer and then a little bit of background context um, for the paper itself. The first disclaimer is that it's a bit of a pleasure for my forthcoming book. Um, It's essentially based on the first chapter of it so I just thought I'd get that out there. So Um, Some of you may have heard some of the arguments I'll make today before, um, and for that I apologise. But on the broader question of of placing um, what I'm attempting to do in context, um, there's been, I suppose, an explosion of academic work in the last 20 years or so on Xinjiang, um, in particular in the United States. Um, But my my forthcoming book, and, and, and this presentation in particular, are influenced by a number of older works in the field, um, in particular those of Alan Lattimore, a great uh, American uh, Central Asianist, um, whose, whose main work was in the 1930s through to the 1950s, um, Andrew Forbes, um, a British scholar, and then also Don McMillan, a colleague of, of ours at the University of Southern Queensland. Um, and, and Don's book in particular um, was was quite influential as it was the first book-length study of Xinjiang under the People's Republic of China. Um, and basically anyone who begins study of Xinjiang these days reads Don's work. Um, so I suppose uh, those were the three main influences, and, and the reason why they're influences on um, this particular uh, presentation today was the approaches taken and, and by all three of those, those authors... I mean, Lattimore really takes a broad geopolitical approach uh, to Xinjiang's importance, not only to China, but also uh, to the, the broader Eurasian continent. Forbes, on the other hand, um, was really focused on a detailed analysis of the, the local politics of Xinjiang in the, uh, in the early part of the 20th century, And whereas Macmillan was obviously very much focused on what he termed uh, the revolutionary integration of Xinjiang under Mao. Um, So, in a sense, this presentation today is attempting to to meld elements of of those three approaches. Um, So, in a sense, it's an attempt to to get the big picture perspective that Lattimore would take, but also uh, with a little bit of the detail of Forbes and Macmillan. So, just to begin, the most obvious question and what and and where is Xinjiang? as you can see on the map there, it's in the far northwest of the PRC. Um, it's China's largest administrative unit. It's populated by uh, 13 of China's officially uh, recognised 55 ethnic groups. Um, and until quite recently, um, the population of Xinjiang was predominantly uh, of Turkic ethnic groups. But that, that uh, is changing quite rapidly. Um, additionally, and obviously this forms the basis for the sort of geopolitical view of Xinjiang, um, is that it shares uh, borders with, with seven states presently, uh, Mongolia, Russia, the three Central Asian republics of Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan uh, and Kazakhstan, and also Afghanistan and Pakistan. So just that, looking at the map, you can see why Owen Lattimore termed Xinjiang the pivot of Asia back in the 1950s. However the Chinese government released a, a white paper on the history and development of Xinjiang uh, back in 2003. And I've taken this, this quote out of it uh, as a starting point uh, because it points towards a number of interesting questions. Um, I won't read the quote uh, verbatim to you because um, you can see it there. Um, the points I'd like to, to note, however, is that uh, firstly, uh, through, throughout this from the quote and also throughout the white paper, is the assumption that Xinjiang belongs to China and always has in per- perpetuity and for it always will. Uh, secondly, uh, it also acknowledges that China has a diverse uh, ethnic population. Uh, thirdly, that the PRC was founded by all ethnic minority or ethnic groups. Uh, fourthly, that Xinjiang's development has been achieved by all ethnic groups. Uh, And finally, there has has been many religion practised in the region that is now known as Xinjiang. Now, despite uh, this confidence, in a sense, that Xinjiang is Chinese, um, that all the ethnic groups share in its economic development, uh, we had in in 2009, in in July, widespread uh, violence in Urumqi, which is the capital of Xinjiang. Now, the background... Uh, to the riots, while I've just focused on the Urumqi riots here um, the, spark, the initial spark for it was actually a, uh, the, the murder of a number of Uyghur migrant workers in, in Guangzhou a few weeks prior and news of this spread quite rapidly to Xinjiang and large Uyghur protests in Urumqi was basically protesting the government's lack of action in prosecuting those responsible uh, for the events in, in Guangzhou The interesting thing about these particular riots was what was new about them for those who'd been observing uh, Xinjiang for some time. Uh, I'd like to just note these points quickly because I'll come back to these right at the end of the, the paper. The most prominent factor was perhaps the intereth- inter-ethnic nature of, of the violence uh, in Urumqi. Uh, after the initial protest of Uyghurs on the 5th of July came a wave of, of Han vigilantism uh, the day after. Um, which result in the deaths of, of, of quite a number of, of Uyghurs. There was also the fact that the Han, which you can see just a little snapshot there on the right, their anger was very much directed not only towards the Uyghur uh, but also towards the provincial authorities, the government itself, which is something of a new phenomenon. And this has led some to suggest uh, the ethnicisation of, of conflict in Xinjiang, um, which I'll return to uh, towards the end. As uh, Michael uh, noted in his introduction, is that um, the main thrust of, of my argument is really that the, the image and rhetoric of China as a, as a confident uh, rising great power uh, is, is, uh, trans- uh, is contrasted with its rhetoric in Xinjiang. Um, basically, uh, the rhetoric that was in that first quote from the 2003 white paper—you know, Xinjiang has always been Chinese, etc um, It's belied by the notion which you see after the events in Urumqi. We have this very strident uh, Chinese government response to it. You know, we don't want these people trying to split Xinjiang from China, etc. Now, why why is it a problem uh, for China? Um, China's sovereignty in Xinjiang is unchallenged. No other state challenges uh, China's sovereignty over the region. Um, it did have territorial disputes with the former Soviet Union and the post-Soviet Central Asian republics, but those all basically now resolved. Um, Xinjiang ha- has achieved substantial economic growth in the last 20 years, uh, and Chinese power and influence uh, throughout the wider Central Asian region has grown. Um, so, so, so why the paranoia um, about Xinjiang? Basically, I'd suggest that the, the problem uh, stems from Beijing, uh, from Beijing's state, constant statements that Xinjiang is an integral part of, of the PRC. It's not really a statement of fact. It's really a statement of intent. Um, there's a recognition that integration of Xinjiang, the binding ever closer of Xinjiang to the core of China, is an ongoing project. Um, and this also su- suggests that there's the current, current international boundaries in Central Asia, are somewhat contingent. So, so looking, uh, taking a broader perspective on this, um, I'd, I'd focus on uh, three three major questions um, uh, when sort of dealing with the idea of how to, how to talk about uh, the integration of Xinjiang in a broader historical framework. Um, and ultimately, I think it falls down to uh, the question of what uh, has been defined. And claimed by China as constituting Xinjiang, who was then deemed to constitute the population of the region, and how has the Chinese state uh, sought to make Xinjiang, and and most importantly, its people, its diverse ethnic uh, population, part uh, of the PRC? Um, These three questions suggest a number of core themes. Um, The first concerns uh, territoriality. The second, uh, what Foucault termed governmentality, but I also um, would suggest a, a wider perspective of, of integration there, and also uh, the geopolitical factors emanating from Xinjiang's position. Now, with regards to these three core themes, I argue that the history of Xinjiang since the 19th century uh, can be seen as a, an integral, although uh, incomplete part of the territorialisation Uh, in the Westphalian sense of modern China. Um, The recognition of China's claim to uh, sovereignty over Xinjiang, which was achieved by the middle of the 20th century, uh, has proven to be um, a first but important step in in the state's quest to to make the region an integral part of China. Um, Since 1949, the task of the the People's Republic and the the Communist Party in particular uh, has been uh, how best to manage the relationship between uh, the population of Xinjiang and the Chinese state. Uh, Secondly, the manner in which the Chinese state has attempted to resolve uh, that particular question has reflected uh, what Foucault termed the development of of governmentality. Um, And this sphere really concerns the the processes, means and strategies by which the state has attempted to integrate uh, the peoples of of Xinjiang. Um, And finally, the manner in which the PRC has sought sought to achieve integration in the region has also shaped its foreign policy in Central Asia in fundamental ways. Um, and Specifically, the progress of integration has meant that Beijing no longer conceives of Xinjiang as a strategic buffer region uh, in the traditional sense but as a potential strategic and economic asset that can actively contribute to the power of the nation state. So, The final point is really uh, the core element for me, of, of China's strategy in Xinjiang at the moment. Now, in terms of territoriality, the importance of, of this particular aspect, uh, in terms of the history of Xinjiang's integration uh, with China, uh, was sparked by, uh, by reading a, an article by the American historian Charles Charles Mayer, uh, in which he argued that the conventional narrative of 20th century history obscures one of the most encompassing or fundamental socio-political trends of modern world development namely the emergence, ascendancy and subsequent crisis of what is best labelled territoriality. Uh, He then goes on to define territoriality as the properties, uh, including power, provided by the control of bordered political space. Um, And I I would suggest that the history of Xinjiang uh, from at least the the middle of the 19th century uh, through to the present, uh, you can see... uh, the development of this, this theme in Chinese perceptions of, of the region and in Chinese policy towards the region. Having said that, there are then two uh, key linkages between the notion of territoriality as defined uh, by Maya, uh and uh, the history of, China, of the integration of Xinjiang. Um, firstly, Chinese history uh, since uh, perhaps the middle of the, the 19th century uh, has generally been concerned with entering the modern, in inverted commas, international system. Um, This required a a number of things. It required the reordering of the relationship between political authority and and territory, and you can see this most clearly during the late Qing period, uh, not only in Xinjiang, but elsewhere uh, in the Qing Empire. It also uh, required that the post-imperial state in China, that is post-1911, had to assume the trappings of the modern nation-state, and most importantly, these two aspects—the uh, reordering of the relationship between political authority, authority and territory, and the assumption of the trappings of the nation-state—really took place at the international level or the diplomatic level, uh, particularly between 1911 and 1949, um, where China made repeated, well, the, the Republic of China made repeated claims to sovereignty over Xinjiang when it actually had no concrete power on the ground in the region yet those claims were ultimately recognised. Secondly, imperial states' claim, in terms of having that claim recognised, there was internationally there was also a flip side to that, and this is the element which has confronted the PRC. While China's sovereignty in Xinjiang was recognised by uh, the middle of the 20th century, uh, they still actually had to achieve uh, an element of legitimacy within, within that territory, i.e. they had to actually extend the instruments of state power into Xinjiang and have those recognised as legitimate um, by the population. Arguably, that has yet to be achieved. And that second issue of legitimacy uh, is particularly important in the context of of Xinjiang, where you have a long history of of cultural, economic and political linkages to lands beyond Xinjiang and Central Asia. And also, you have alternative modes of political authority and legitimacy, in a sense, competing Um, with those uh, originating uh, in China. And in this sense, in the the book, I I suggest that uh, the relationship between all the contestation of legitimacy um, reflects Foucault's notion of a permanent provocation, um, where he suggests uh, of a power relationship that is at the same time mutual incitement and struggle, less a face-to-face confrontation that paralyzes both sides than a permanent provocation. Uh, And this particular theme is evident throughout Chinese history as it concerns the integration of Xinjiang. In particular, it's evident in the state's attempt uh, to resolve the who and and how questions that I I noted earlier. Uh, And it's in this realm where where the notion of of governmentality uh, uh, comes in. Uh, In particular, um, Foucault again says that uh, to govern uh, in this particular sense is to structure the possible field of action of others, to my reading of Xinjiang's history, uh, particularly under the PRC, is that Chinese policy has been very much about structuring the possible field of action of uh, the non-Han Chinese population of the region. Um, And and this particular uh, endeavour to structure the field of action has been reflected across a broad range of of different areas, uh, from ethnographic projects in the 1950s to identify uh, various ethnic groups to define them and so forth, um, also to the establishment of, of national regional autonomy in the 1950s, which was also based on uh, those ethnographic surveys, uh, and, and ultimately, uh, uh, moving into the, to, to later years, uh, um, a management or surveillance of religious practice on, on the part of the, the uh, Muslim peoples of the region. So in in the post-1949 period in particular, this issue of establishing legitimacy was pursued by a number of different methods. Uh, During the Maoist era, uh, say 1949 to 1976, it was really pursued through the application of the Leninist model of national self-determination and also the Maoist models of political and economic organisation. After Mao's death, however, and the re-emergence of Deng Xiaoping, you have legitimacy. the issue of legitimacy somewhat more tied up with the delivery of economic development and modernisation. And that's, in a sense, where it stands today. While I noted before there has been economic development in Xinjiang, which the Chinese have often viewed as something of a curative for ethnic minority discontent, there still remains... Insecurity and anxiety amongst the non-Han peoples of the region as uh, we saw with the July uh, events in Urumqi. So this suggests there has been a failure to resolve those who and how questions, sort of an impasse, uh, if you will. This brings me to the link between integration and the geopolitical issues surrounding Xinjiang. In terms of integration, you can suggest there's two senses or two meanings of the word. Uh, the first can be the mechanism by which the state has attempted to incorporate the territory of the region into the nation-state itself and a deeper endeavour to incorporate the non-Han peoples of the region uh, into uh, what the PRC defines as the unitary and multi-ethnic Chinese state. Both of these aspects of integration have been affected by the geopolitics of, of Xinjiang. For the PRC, from 1949 until at least the late 1980s, The integration of the region was understood to require the isolation of Xinjiang from Central Asia, uh, coupled with the vigorous extension of modern instruments of political, economic and social control into the region. And the interesting question from from this perspective is why did Beijing consider integration required isolation uh, of of the region? Now, this ultimately, this requirement of isolation is really the result of, of the fact that the region historically... Uh, has been of strategic concern for China rather than anything else. In particular, it's been the linkage of Xinjiang to the historical opposition of the nomadic core of Central or Inner Asia to that of the sedentary civilisations of China and India and so forth. What this particular map is about is what Justin Rudelson has called uh, Xinjiang's geographic template. And what he Demonstrates by this is essentially if you look at the, a map of Xinjiang, it essentially consists of three elliptical regions. Uh, you have the, the Zungarian Basin uh, in the north, uh, in the south, the Tarim Basin, and uh, to where I've got the arrow where Gansu is, uh, just that little region to the left there is the, is the Turfan Basin. Now, his point is that geographic and ecological factors combine historically to make each. Of the subregions of Xinjiang, uh, be oriented away from each other, outward. So you have the Tarim Basin is essentially oriented towards what are now the Central Asian republics, and also to a lesser extent to Afghanistan and Pakistan. Uh, in the north, the zungarian Basin is oriented to the Kazakh Steppe on the one hand and Mongolia on the other, and, and the Turfan Basin is oriented to, to Kansu. So what he suggests is that uh, and not just Rudelson, but also Owen Lattimore uh, in the past had suggested these factors were one of the key reasons why previous Chinese attempts to control the region had failed, except, of course, for, for the Qing dynasty. Um, so the Qing uh, legacy is quite interesting in, in Xinjiang um, because uh, it really was the first time that those three sub-regions of Xinjiang were ruled as, as one unit. Um, now, this, of course, all falls apart with the collapse of, of the Qing dynasty, uh, where, where you have uh, what Latin will termed the the return of the gravitational pull uh, of Central Asia or Inner Asia, if you will. Um, so, in a sense, the Qing were not able to overcome those geographical and ecological factors that, that pulled apart the three sub-regions of Xinjiang. However, when we move to the Republican period between 1911 and 1949, as I suggested, as I noted earlier, uh, where the central government of China had basically no control whatsoever on the ground in the region, yet it constantly claimed sovereignty in the region, also a number of the Han warlords of the region uh, sort of tipped their hat to the central government and said, yes, we are part of China, but to all intents and purposes uh, it remained separate. And what is interesting about that was the idea had already had been uh, embedded in uh, Chinese elite opinion, uh, if you will, that Xinjiang was part of China, that it had to be part of China. Uh, and this quotation I have here is from Liang Chichao, who was a, a prominent uh, intellectual in the early Republican period. And he, he says here, uh, quite categorically, um, that... When uh, Xinjiang was made a province uh, of China in 1884, uh, one of the last sort of acts of the Qing Dynasty in the region, um, that we can consider it to be completely incorporated into Chinese territory and made the same as the interior. That he could make that statement in the in the early 1920s, uh, when in fact the region was racked by uh, various Turkic uh, rebellions, was ruled by autonomous warlords, where the Kuomintang, or sorry, later on the Gumandang government had absolutely no remit uh, is, is quite quite interesting. And these two headlines are really uh, from, from the New York Times uh, around that period in the, the early 1930s, um, which, are, which are quite interesting. The one, the one on the left is interesting because it suggests that sorry, down, right down the bottom, that the new government was said to have published a slogan banish the Chinese from Xinjiang. And on, on the second Uh, we can see, once again, the the geopolitical factors coming into play, where the British are interested, apparently, and what's going on in in Xinjiang. And why I bring these up is because these sort of themes have have crept back into Chinese discussion of Xinjiang, this idea that there are hostile external forces that are bent on on pulling Xinjiang away from, from China. And to return to, to the issue of structuring the field of action of others, the fate of Xinjiang in that period, in the 1930s and 1940s, really suggests that power uh, of those claims made by the Chinese to sovereignty over the region. Um, there were two particular rebellions uh, or East, that, that formed uh, an East Turkestan republic in the region, one in 1933 and one from 1944 to 1949. Now, the ability of both those particular movements to actually achieve statehood was basically limited by, by a number of factors, and perhaps most important was China's prior claim to sovereignty over the region, and in particular China's uh, vigorous diplomacy with the Soviet Union at the time. Secondly, and this is a, a theme that, I've lost, uh, that I'll get back to shortly, is the framing, the successful framing by the Chinese government at the time of both East Turkestan republics as radical Turkic or Islamic uh, movements. Thirdly, was also the geopolitical interests of the Soviet Union, which essentially meant um, they used, particularly the, the latter East Turkestan Republic, as its casus port in, in, in the region to reassert its historical influence. And finally, there is a continuity of Chinese justifications for claiming sovereignty in Xinjiang. Uh, And this is one that you see quite recently as well. Um, This comment here from uh, General Zhang from 1947, uh, he was actually in charge of the Guomindang forces in in Xinjiang at the time, uh, negotiating with the East Turkestan Republic. And he suggests that while the the government would be willing to surrender political power to the people of, of Xinjiang, it had to be on the condition that the territory and sovereignty of the nation suffer no impairment thereby and that the central government will not tolerate anything possibly detrimental to the territorial integrity of the state. That particular statement echoes, uh, if you go back into Qing history, a statement made by the general in charge of reconquering uh, Xinjiang in the 1870s, where he basically said, we have to have, uh, Xinjiang has to be back in the empire because Xinjiang provides a buffer to Mongolia, and Mongolia provides a buffer to the imperial capital in Beijing. So there's a long thread of continuity in terms of the geopolitical perception of the region and its importance. In terms of the PRC period, obviously the gravitational pull that Lattimore talked about was negated when the PLA peacefully liberated the region in 1949. There was therefore no longer a frontier zone between, again, what Lattimore termed the margins of expansion of China and Russia, and he foresaw various problems uh, with that development uh, in terms of the relationship between the Chinese and the Soviet Union. Chinese sovereignty over Xinjiang was finally recognised by the Soviets uh, in 1950. So in a sense, China, the the new government of China, achieved one of the great aims, which was to have its, its sovereignty over the region recognised by the most powerful states in the international system. So that was achieved. However, I suggest that from the history of the region from then on has really about been about filling up in, in, uh, in terms of filling up the the margins of expansion of China uh, of the Chinese realm uh, with instruments of state power and management control and this has been attempted through various various measures uh, most importantly including uh, Han settlement of the region, modern infrastructure development, exploitation of resources and and also, uh, seeking Legitimacy, which I pointed to earlier. This, I've noted the internal part, but there's also the external element of Seeking Legitimacy, and that was uh, particularly prominent uh, in the 1960s, where you have this propaganda battle in Xinjiang between the Chinese and the Soviet Union, trying to drag each of their Turkic ethnic groups into the Sino-Soviet dispute. In terms of the region uh, after the Soviet collapse, there was perhaps five major challenges uh, to the PRC and its attempts to resolve the who and how uh, problems of the region. Uh, firstly, was obviously the uh, re-emergence of Central Asia as the realm of a number of independent states. Secondly, it was the Islamic revival in Central Asia, which generated concerns in, in, amongst uh, the provincial authorities about uh, their coming to the fore an alternative source of political legitimacy that... Uh, the Uyghurs or the Kazakhs uh, could look, look westwards to challenge the, the Chinese state. Uh, thirdly there was the question of economic underdevelopment which uh, the Chinese have, have attempted to, to remedy as I said by massive investment in infrastructure and so forth. Uh, there was also and continues to be the issue of increased Han settlement some would say colonisation uh, of Xinjiang uh, and finally there's also the issue of the resurgence of separatist <laughs> sentiment Now, obviously, all five of those, sorry, the top four of those feed into the fifth element the resurgence of of ethnic minority discontent, sometimes expressed violently, sometimes not. So, this brings me back to to the beginning and the the Urumqi unrest in terms of of, of what uh, exactly is new about it. Now, in terms of the ethnicisation of the conflict, uh, as I Suggested before, the Uyghur anger that you saw in Arunchi uh, in July um, was not only directed at the state, like previous aspect of uh, previous episodes of, of Uyghur unrest have been. They were also directed at, at normal Han citizens on the street in the city. The Han response, as I said before, was targeting Uyghurs but also protesting against the government. And, and what was interesting there, what is interesting there, is it really widens the scope for inter-ethnic conflict in Xinjiang uh, because you have a number of different societal actors uh, now with the state, in a sense, caught in between, between them. And, and as an illustration of that, uh, the state being caught in between those forces was a month or so after these events in uh you have vast Han Chinese demonstrations against the provincial authorities, in particular against the, the chairman of, of the autonomous region, who had been in power for around 15 15 years and was considered quite a hardliner in terms of dealing with uh, ethnic minorities. The main charge that the Han protests had levelled against him was that he was being soft on the Uyghurs, he was coddling them. And this is quite ironic, uh, given uh, the Chairman's history, in effect, throughout the 90s, he instituted what were called strike-hard campaigns against uh, Uyghurs, against ethnic minorities, closing down mosques, etc., so apparently that was being soft on the Uyghurs. Um, so you have another societal actor emerging that is an element of the Han population that is discontented with not only the Uyghurs but also with the state itself. Now, what is not new uh, about this situation? Well, and this comes back to this issue of the geopolitics of the region. Obviously, uh, in particular, unrest in Xinjiang is viewed as the work of external forces meddling in China's affairs, they want to split China apart. Uh, in the July 2009 example the culprit in turn, uh, for the Chinese government uh, was the US National Endowment for Democracy uh, and also uh, the World Uyghur Congress which is led by Arabia Qadir. What is interesting about that for those who have observed Xinjiang for a long time is the change in the labels that are applied to China's perceived enemies in, in Xinjiang. Prior to 2009, perhaps in the early, in the wake of September 11, China went on a diplomatic campaign of sorts to basically label all Uyghur autonomy groups as terrorists to sort of cash in on the war on terror. That's now changed. You have the World Uyghur Congress, for example, which is a conglomeration of various Uyghur groups. The Chinese charge that They're funded by the National Endowment for Democracy. Um, which is a, a quite interesting charge. Um, but more in- interestingly as far as I'm concerned for the, for the broader uh, view of, of uh, uh, that I'm taking here is that a lot of the Chinese government's criticism uh, of not only uh, Uyghur groups but also the United States is linked to its uh, geopolitical perceptions of the importance of Xinjiang for China. Now in, in this respect, there was a, a particularly strident editorial in the China Daily uh, about a week after the events in Urumqi, which specifically related the unrest in Xinjiang to US concerns with China's rising profile in Central Asia. Um, and it said the reasons for Washington's intervention, this is uh, when they say intervention, they're talking about uh, Obama's calls for calm and so forth in the wake of, of the riots. Apparently that's that. They, qualified as an intervention, um, US intervention to, Sin, uh, to Xinjiang affairs seems to have little to do with concerns over alleged human rights abuses against Uyghur people. Rather, it seems to have very much to do with the strategic political like the geopolitical location of Xinjiang on the Eurasian landmass and its strategic importance for China's future economic development and energy cooperation with Russia and the other states of the Shanghai Cooperation Organisation. So You can see quite clearly um, that all these concerns uh, with uh, the development of uh, legitimacy of of the uh, Chinese government within Xinjiang is at issue. It hasn't yet been resolved, but on the other hand, it also feeds into these perceptions of the geopolitical importance of Xinjiang on the other so, this really influences China's diplomacy in the, in the wider Central Asian region, where it's really attempted to co opt or coerce or persuade a lot of the Central Asian states to cooperate in the clampdown on Uyghur separatist groups in, in the region. Um, and while I was thinking of maybe a snappy quote to, to finish with, um, I came across a very interesting piece. Uh, written by a Times correspondent to Chongqing during the Second World War. He actually bench- ventured out to-, to Xinjiang in 1943 and he suggested other Turks who formed 60% of the population, he was a little out, it was probably more like 80% of the population at that time, uh, are they to be steamrolled into the Chinese pattern or inundated and absorbed by tidal waves of China- Chinese immigration. Will China try to preserve the minority languages, schools and courts and let, let the natives participate in their own government? I suggest that the PRC has struggled to strike a balance between the twin imperatives that seem to be implicit in in that particular quote. On the one hand, the the imperative for the state to control the region, but also, on the other hand, to generate legitimacy for its rule uh, in the region. So I'll leave it there. Thanks very much, Mike. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.